Can we pray? Father, what a privilege it is this morning to be together as your people and to declare, God, that you are so, so good. Thank you that you have welcomed us in through Jesus. Thank you that you have adopted us as your precious sons and daughters. Thank you that you have sealed us with your spirit who lives in us as the guarantee that you are going to fulfill every single promise you've made to us. Thank you for the hope we have of being loved by you and being in your presence forever and ever in a relationship that can never end and never fail. God, we celebrate that today. Lord, as we start into this new series this morning on One Plus One, on relationships and human love and love at a horizontal level, we pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes to understand what it is you call us to be. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So it's awesome to have you with us, whether you're here at Botany or whether you're watching this um, on the TV in Hastings at Harataki and Shona's home. Kia ora to you guys. It was so special to be with you a few weeks ago and just to hang out with you. And glad you're joining us for this series over these next six weeks. Or if you're listening or watching this online, it's cool to have you as well. A few weeks ago, I was watching uh, TV and I finished the show that I was uh, watching and I flipped the channel and I came in in the middle of a a movie. It was about two-thirds of the way through, but it was one of those um, romantic movies that um, you only actually need to watch the last third to kind of get the whole plot because you kind of know how it's going to unfold and, and where it's going. The movie was called Serendipity. I don't know how many people have actually seen that movie. John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale, who are really, really good actors. But it's this movie about these these two uh, people in New York who bump into each other in the Christmas season, both reach for the same pair of gloves, and um, and there's this connection, and there's this something mystical that happens, and... And they end up kind of meeting a little bit, but then I don't want to go into the whole story, but they end up separating. And, 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 and a few years later, both of them are engaged to other people, but they can't help wondering whether, whether they were really fated for that person they met that few years ago in Bloomingdale's. Was, there, was that person actually the one? Was this person they're, they're now engaged to their soulmate, or was that their soulmate? And I don't want to tell you the whole plot because there's some intricacies to the plot that are really quite cool and quite clever, but it doesn't spoil the plot to let you know how it ends, does it? Really? Because this is how it ends. (laughs) They both broke off their engagements and somehow mystically on an open ice rink in the middle of New York City with a light snow falling that just kisses their cheek, (laughs) they find each other and embrace And as they kiss and the camera slowly pans off the scene and goes into darkness, you just know they're going to live happily ever after. (laughs) Because fate brought them together. And even though there were these other people in their orbit, they they just knew this this was the one. And they found each other and, and so they'd live happily ever after. This is the romantic narrative of our world. This is how we've been brought up in the Western world to think about love and romance and human relationships. That somewhere out there, there is the one. There is that special soulmate whom you just mystically find 
and have this unfathomable connection with. In some measure, they complete you. And, and that is how relationships work. And if you want to find your, your soulmate, if you want to be complete in life, you just have to find the one. And when you've found the one, all will be well. Every romantic novel, every romantic movie, every TV show, <laughs> it's built on the premise that all the honey badger has to do is work his way through 26 desperate women who are willing to put their dignity on the line for this romantic narrative. I mean, I'm laughing with you, but this is serious. They all joined the show. Why? Because he might be the one. And he went on the show so he could kiss 26 women. But see if he could whittle 26 down to one. He could find his soulmate. And whether it's The Bachelor, or Married at First Sight, or Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire looking across the room filled with her girlfriends, who know he's been an idiot and a jerk, but he looks across the room at Renee Zellweger and makes this beautiful speech that climaxes in six amazing words. I love you, you complete me. And we all swoon. And some of you, both genders, pull out tissues. <laughs> because this is the narrative we believe. So this morning, as we jump into the six-week series called One Plus One, where I want to look at love and romance and singleness and marriage and sex, I want to start with this issue, finding the one. Because our whole romantic narrative of our age is built on this. So we need to think carefully about, well, how do we do this? How do we find our soulmate, the one who will complete us? The best place to start, of course, in our world today is Wikipedia. Because <laughs> you Google something and Google sends you to Wikipedia, so that's how you operate. Wikipedia says, a soulmate is a person with whom one has a feeling of deep and natural affinity. It is commonly accepted that one will feel, quote-unquote, complete once they have found their soulmate as it is partially in the perceived definition that two souls are meant to unite. So my question this morning is this. Where does this idea come from? Where have we developed this notion that there is the one out there, this soulmate who we are meant to mystically find and who will complete us and fill out every need? Where does this narrative actually come from, and is it true? <clears throat> Well, here's the bad news. It actually comes from Greek mythology. Plato, one of the, the famous ancient philosophers of Greece, wrote this in his symposium. According to Greek mythology, humans were originally created with four arms, four legs, and a head with two faces. Fearing their power, Zeus, who was the king of the gods, split them into two separate parts, condemning them to spend their lives in search of the other halves. This is the origin of our romantic narrative. 
that when the gods created human beings, they created us round. We were round beings with four arms and four legs, which meant we could roll everywhere really fast. And we had two faces. But the gods were threatened by these round humans. This is, this is serious mythology. And so Zeus cut every human being in half. So now you are walking around with two arms and two legs and one face. But somewhere in the world is your other half, the one that you were separated from by Zeus. And that means there is this one person in the world that fits you like a glove because that's your other half. And when you find that one and reconnect with them, you are now complete. Our entire understanding of love and romance is built on a mythology none of us actually believe or would put any credence in whatsoever. Aristophanes is, is one of the, the characters in uh, Plato's work. And Aristophanes says, love is born into every human being. It calls back the halves of our original nature together. Each of us then is a matching half of a human whole, and each of us is always seeking the half that matches him. That's how it flows. That's how it works. Now, I have at least two major issues with this, apart from the fact that all of Greek mythology was a myth. One, though, is this promotes the idea that if you are single, you are only half a person. Because somewhere out there is your other half. And without that other person, you are incomplete. You are not whole. And I think that's a horrific idea. It's actually incredibly unbiblical. Because God says each of us, men and women, all of us, are created in his image as his image bearers. And we don't need another half to make us whole. God has created us as full people and we have dignity in and of ourselves. And we've actually bought a lie in this romantic narrative that says, I need another to be complete. That's rubbish. God has created you as a unique image bearer of him. And you don't need another half. You're already complete in him. The second problem I have with this narrative is not only what it says about this being half a person. It's the idea that another human being will complete us. Biblically, that is untrue as well. Because our deepest needs can never be met by another human being. Our deepest needs can only be met by our creator God who loves us and wants to be our father. And we are incomplete. But we're incomplete because of our sin and rebellion against God. And we don't find our completeness in the arms of someone else. We find our completeness in the arms of a father who adopts us as sons and daughters and loves us no matter what, and never lets us go. So I'm sorry if you're a romantic at heart, but I am pushing back strongly on the romantic narrative of our world. This is my big idea today. You don't mystically find your soulmate and complete each other. You do not in life mystically find your soulmate 
and complete each other. That is the narrative we buy into. That's the narrative behind The Bachelor and Jerry Maguire and serendipity, and it is untrue and wrong. You don't just mystically find your soulmate. And when you find each other, you don't complete each other. There's a different narrative in the Bible. And through this series, we're going <coughs> to... Excuse me. We're going to jump a little bit, but for the six-week series, we're going to be mainly centered in one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's called 1 Corinthians in our New Testament. And we're going to be looking primarily at different verses in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Today, though, I'm only going to do one verse. So you're welcome to turn to it if you want, but I'm just going to throw it on the screen here just because it's the one verse that I just want to center in and zero into this morning. It comes at the very end of Paul's argument. So in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul is writing about uh, sex and about uh, marriage and the sexual uh, relationship within marriage. He's talking about singleness. He's talking about people who are engaged. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 7, right at the very conclusion, he makes a passing comment to one more category that he hasn't addressed specifically yet, which is widows, and by implication, widowers, those who have, have lost their spouse to death. And this is what he says. This is 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, and here's where I want to build off today. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, and vice versa, but it's concentrating on, on uh, the, the widows in this case. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So let's just be super clear. What Paul has been talking about marriage and singleness earlier in the chapter, and he's been very clear that whatever condition you were in when you trusted in Jesus, then you, know, you stay there if, if you were married. If you were married, and then you come to faith in Jesus, and that means you're now married to a spouse who is not a follower of Jesus, you stay in that relationship. You don't divorce unless that spouse abandons you. That's their point, but you stay where you are. Now he comes to widows and he says, well, it's different for you because your husband has died and vice versa for widowers. Now, and because they're now dead, that marriage relationship is over. So therefore, you have the right to remarry. You are free to marry. But it's the next three words that I want us to hear. You are free to marry anyone she wishes. That Simple little phrase cuts right across the romantic narrative of our world. When our world is saying there is one person out there, your soulmate somewhere there, and if you can only mystically find your soulmate, then you'll be complete. Paul comes along speaking to widows saying, hey, you're free to remarry. And you know what? You're free to marry anyone you wish. Like you've got the full buffet. It's not a completely full buffet. There are two limits on what he says in the next phrase. One limit is around gender. A widow is free to marry anyone she wishes but he, so she's free to marry a man. So that's actually cutting right across the redefinition of marriage that's happened in our culture and society recently that says any committed relationship, regardless of gender, is okay. Because the biblical narrative and teaching is that God created us male and female, and marriage is for husbands and wives together, not same gender. doesn't mean that God does not love people who may have those feelings and inclinations, but we 
define our lives and live our lives according to what God has said. So that's the first boundary. The second boundary is that he, so he must be male, and he also must be Christian. He must belong to the Lord. All right, so, so what Paul's done is he's limited the buffet slightly. So widows has to be a guy, and he has to be a Christian guy. Other than that, you're free. Choose who you like. That's completely different to the narrative that says there's one person, and you need to find them. Paul comes along and says, no, no, marry whomever you wish. See, biblically, you don't mystically find your soulmate and, and, and complete each other. Biblically, you wisely choose a soulmate and you commit to each other. Now, I know, I know, some of you are inwardly groaning already. Because that just doesn't sound romantic, does it? You're not, so I'm not mystically finding anyone. I've got to actually engage my brain and, and wisely choose. And then they don't even get to be my soulmate. They're like my one and only soulmate. And it's not even they complete each other. Instead, I've got to commit to them. Like, is that it? Yes, that's it. And it does cut across the romantic narrative of our age. But I think this is critically important to understand. God says we are free to marry within the family of God. Anyone we choose. Now that means we have to use wisdom. But we have freedom to choose. But when we choose, what we will not find is this amazing, they complete me. Instead, it's a call to lay our lives down in sacrificial love for our spouse and commit to each other. It's a very different narrative, but it's the narrative that leads to a fulfilling and wonderful marriage relationship. So, how do we apply this? What I want to do is I want to spend a significant period of time talking to those of you who are single, because you are the primary audience in this series. And then at the end, I want to make, say a few words to the marriage, but I want to spend a bit more time uh, on the singles, and you'll understand why in a minute. If you're married, don't check out, though, because I think you may go, oh, maybe I should have done that. <laughs> but, as we'll see when we get to your comments, too late. <laughs> right, Singles. I want to say four things. Number one, if this is true, if there is not the one out there, and God says, there's freedom, you may marry whomever you wish, so choose wisely, then you can date with freedom. There is not this pressure that among the seven billion people in the world, so three and a half billion, basically, of the opposite gender to you, you know, you've got to find the one in three and a half billion. I mean, that's worse than a needle in a haystack. And the biblical narrative is, no, you may marry whomever you choose. Just choose really wisely. That actually, I think, brings so much more freedom that you're not trying to work out whether or not the fact that they like spaghetti or not makes them the one. Or whether the fact they tilt their head a certain way and smirk, whether that means they're the one. There's not the one. I think that's wonderfully freeing. But it's also putting a whole lot more onus on you to be wise and to choose well. 
Because now it's not about mystically finding anyone, it's about choosing wisely. So date with freedom. Secondly, I think this means you need to date with realism. Because no single human being can ever meet all your needs. So please do not, if you are single and you would like to be married and you're surveying the scene, do not go out there with an assumption that you are looking for this person who will complete you. Tom Cruise is wrong on many things, and that is one of them. You are looking for someone that you want to follow Jesus with. You're looking for someone that you want to pursue life with. You're looking for someone that you're friends with. We're going to go through some criteria in just a minute. So you need to choose wisely, but just understand, be realistic. You will never find another human being who will meet every single one of your needs. So date with realism. Date with freedom and date with realism. And date with purpose. Date with purpose. Know what you're looking for and look for the right things. I know that does not sound romantic, does it? I'm just spoiling the whole party. But I think this is incredibly important. One of the books, I've been reading a whole bunch of books, especially actually by singles, uh, single Christians who love Jesus, and I have loved some of the, the things that they've shared. One of the books I particularly liked is by a guy called Ben Stewart. It's called Single, Dating, Engaged, Married. And Ben Stewart writes this, Dating is not a status to dwell in, it's a process to move through. It's meant to lead us to a particular end, discerning whether or not we're meant to marry that particular person. Dating exists for evaluation. It's incredibly important for two things, two reasons. Number one, what he's saying is, don't just go out with someone because you like being in a relationship with them. And, and you like having someone love you. Because that's actually quite selfish. Bottom line, you're just using that person to make you feel better about yourself. He says, it's not a status to dwell in. Date with a purpose. And the purpose is to work out whether or not this particular person may be someone that you may want to choose to marry. That means if you're not ready, this is my opinion now, and it's only my opinion, but if you're not ready to marry... You're not ready to date. My strong suggestion, if you're at high school, is just slow down and hang fire. I had no clue what kind of woman I was looking for when I was in high school. Because I had no clue what kind of guy I was. I had no idea about who I was, about my strengths and weaknesses, about where God might take me. I felt a sense of call to be a pastor at the very end of high school and had no clue about where that would take me or what that would mean. I didn't know what kind of woman I was looking for. I think Ben Stewart is right. Dating is not a status to just dwell in and selfishly go out with someone so you feel better about yourself. Dating is a process to get to know someone to see whether or not this person might be the right kind of person to marry. And secondly, I love this final sentence. Dating exists for evaluation. Does that mean when you go out to dinner, you have a 20-point checklist sitting next to you on the table and you just, oh, yeah, okay. No. You do have a checklist. Just don't take it with you. <laughs> but you should have a checklist. And I'm going to suggest a checklist to you in just a minute in case you're wondering. Um, another comment. Uh, a guy, Steve Watters. Watters? I don't know how to say his name. 
Steve said, people who marry well aren't lucky in love. They're intentional in their path. I love that. Because so many people will make that kind of comment, oh, man, you are so lucky. No, no, you chose well. Well done. Good choice. See, our problem is that when we are, here's the phrase, in love, we're not interested in evaluating. We already know, oh, this person, she's so amazing. She, I can just talk, I've never been able to talk to anyone like I can talk to her. And oh, this guy, he is just so cute. And we just sit and we talk for hours. And I just know he's the one. <laughs> the problem with being in love is not that we're in love. Those feelings are wonderful. God made us this way. God made us as emotional beings. And we're meant to feel a chemistry and a connection. But the problem with infatuation, and that's what it is, is that we ride the feelings, but the feelings won't last. And this has come through my reading again and again. Gary Thomas is a, a guy that wrote a wonderful book on marriage, if you're married, called The Sacred Marriage. He's written another book called The Sacred Search. And in that book, he says, the average lifespan of an infatuation is almost always less than two years. Romantic attraction can remain, but it ceases to be the main glue to hold a relationship together on a day-to-day -day basis. And I have read that now in these last uh, six or eight weeks, as I've been researching this series, I have read that kind of phrase again and again and again. A sample was done, an analysis was done by a Dr. Fisher, where they analysed the brain waves of people who are, were in the first six months of a new romantic relationship and compared them to the brain waves of a couple who had been in a relationship for more than two years. And the neurological functioning of our brain is completely different, dependent on where we are in a stage of the relationship. Which means in the first two years, if you are in love, if you are infatuated, if, you, if your heart is soaring, that it's a beautiful thing. I'm not knocking it. But that means you need to be really careful that you don't ride the waves of feelings that will actually not last probably beyond the two-year mark. And if you are sitting there saying, well, I'm the exception to that, and I'm dead scared that people are going to think that. You're not. Rochelle and I, in January, will celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. I don't feel gooey like I felt when I first went out with her. She's probably glad of that, to be honest with you. The infatuation ebbed down. But there is romantic feelings all the way through our marriage. But they're not the glue. The glue of our marriage is a commitment to one another to walk together through life with Jesus. And the feelings peak and the feelings drop. The feelings are not the basis of the relationship. And the danger in the early stages of a dating relationship is it's all about the feelings. And that's why you enjoy the feelings, 
but at the same time evaluate the relationship. Gary Thomas goes on to say this, just because you're in love with someone doesn't mean you should seriously consider marrying them. How's that for a statement? Because he knows, and I've heard it as a pastor, talk to a couple, just got engaged, why are you getting married? Oh, because we love each other. <laughs> yeah, why else? Because if that's your only reason, you need to stop and seriously think. Because every couple that I've ever married, every wedding that I've ever been to in my whole life, they loved each other. And for many of those couples, that wasn't enough to carry through a lifetime of marriage. It's not enough just to love each other. So if you are in a relationship now, if you are single, if you are dating, you're going out, you're engaged, can I just urge you, enjoy the romance, enjoy the, that, that feeling of being in love. It's wonderful. I'm not knocking it. But I'm asking you at the same time to evaluate well. So how do you evaluate? Oh, that's right. Gary Thomas mentioned this caller on Talkback Radio he heard one day. I know I can't trust him, I know he doesn't treat me very well. I know he's not going anywhere in life. But I think he may be the one. <laughs> and she was dead serious. I mean, if this, ladies, if this was a friend of yours and you were having coffee with her, what would you tell her? Guys, if this was your little sister saying this, what would you say? You don't mystically find your soulmate. You wisely choose a soulmate. And if they don't treat you well, and you don't think you can trust them, and they're a loser not doing anything with their life, he's not the one. Hey. Right. So, how do we find the one? You having fun yet? How do you wisely choose? I want to give you five criteria. You ready? We're going to run. Here we go. Man, there's some singles that have got pens up. Ready. <laughs> and actually a number of parents I'm noticing as well. That's awesome. Here we go. Five criteria. Number one. What do you look for? Conviction. The number one thing you look for is conviction. Are they pursuing Jesus? See, that's what Paul said, isn't it? A woman whose husband has died is free to marry anyone she wishes, but what? He must belong to the Lord. He's got to be a follower of Jesus. And personally, my encouragement to you would not just be to find someone who is a Christian or says they're a Christian. I would be looking for someone who passionately loves God. When I met Rochelle, she blew my socks off. Now, she blew my socks off for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them that was that she was gorgeous. Another was that I loved just sitting and talking to her. But another one is that she just loved Jesus. And that made her incredibly attractive. The mission of our church is to passionately love God and purposefully love others. It comes from what Jesus said of the greatest commandments. And that should be our personal mission too. My mission in life should be about passionately loving God and purposefully loving other people. 
But if Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you've got, and if that's the most important thing in your life, you want to look for someone who thinks that's the most important thing in their life too. So look for conviction. Someone who is pursuing Jesus. Secondly, look for character. Are they growing in maturity? You know that radio caller? I don't trust the guy. He doesn't treat me very well. He's a complete loser who's not doing anything with his life. That's a character issue. Proverbs uh, 25. It's better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. (laughs) By the way, Proverbs 25 verse 24a says, it's better to live on the corner of the roof than in a house with a quarrelsome husband. Because it works both ways. A couple of verses on, like a city whose walls are broken is a person who lacks self-control. Do you know who the Proverbs was written for? These were not written. This, that verse at the top, that was not written to husbands who have quarrelsome wives. So that Solomon could say, hey, if, you're, if you've made a wrong choice, let me give you some wisdom. It's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a woman like that. And a guy with a woman like that's thinking, oh, great, now you tell me, you know? Proverbs was written for Solomon's son Rehoboam, who was to inherit the throne of Israel. And he was a single young man. And Solomon is writing to a single young man, saying, this is wisdom. If you have met a beautiful woman and she is quarrelsome, do not go there. If you have met a cute guy who lacks self-control and flies off the handle at anything, or can't keep his hands off you and your eyes the one having to set physical boundaries, don't go there. They're failing the criteria, so evaluate well. Evaluate on conviction, evaluate on chemistry, evaluate on companionship. Are you good friends? Now this is a hard one to evaluate when you're in love. And all of those feelings, because that just feels wonderful. But what I'm shooting for here, I think that friendship is one of the most overlooked core bases of a great marriage. It should be when you're married that your spouse becomes your best friend. On this retreat uh, that Rochelle and I were on with a bunch of senior leaders from the Living Stones Network this last week, one of the speakers, uh, Jack Warren, was talking about who are the comrades in your life? Who are the special few people where you have this two-way relationship and you, you build into their life and they build into your life? We only have a few of these in life. Who are your comrades? And he said, write their names down. You know who's the, the first name I wrote down? Rochelle. She's my comrade. She's my friend. And ever since we met and as we got to know each other, there was just this ease of being with each other. There was a friendship. I never felt like I had to put up a front with her. I never felt like I had to try and impress her. I could just be, and, and we built over time this friendship that has become a basis of our marriage. In the Song of Songs, the woman sings this about her husband at this point in the song. His mouth is sweetness itself. He's altogether lovely. And then she says, listen, this is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Key test is... Are you at ease with each other? Can you be yourself? Can you be real with this person? That's companionship. Fourth one, community. 
Do your family and friends agree that this is a good choice? I only went out with uh, two girls before I met Rochelle, dated two different women. One of them was when I was in my last year of high school, and it was infatuation. And I learned that sometimes infatuation doesn't ebb away after two years. Sometimes it can ebb away after about three or four months. And as an immature year 13 student at high school, I started going out with this girl, and then the feelings just kind of died away. And I was like, oh, now what do I do? And I ended up breaking it off with her and hurt her, although I tried my best to do it well. But I'm just not sure you're mature enough for that at 17, 18 years old. And I hurt her in the process and realised, you know what, it can't just be feelings. The second girl I dated, a few years later, we went out for longer than that, and, and she, she was a lovely woman. In fact, I met her at Parachute a few years ago with her husband again. She's cool. But I soon realised in about six months' time that this probably wasn't the right kind of person for me. She didn't really fit me, my personality, her personality. I didn't just feel like, I increasingly felt like, I don't think this is the right kind of fit for me. As we got to know each other and as we evaluated each other, I don't think this is the right fit. And I ended up breaking it off. And then I remember going home and talking to mum and dad about it. And they said, oh, that's good. <laughs> we didn't think she was right for you. And I said, why not? And they said, your personalities don't fit. You need someone different to her. You need this kind of person. And they not only gave me feedback on that relationship, they helped me to see the kind of person, the kind of woman I should be looking for. Their description actually was remarkably similar to another young woman named Rochelle that I met a couple of years later. There's real wisdom in what your family and friends think. Now, sometimes families can be highly dysfunctional. But most of the time... If you're dating someone and your family and your close friends have some doubts, hit the brakes, slow down, and evaluate even more carefully. Proverbs says, where there is no guidance, a people fail, but in abundance of counsellors, there is safety. Finally then, chemistry. Is there a mutual attraction to each other? Because that's important, isn't it? You know, there needs to be attraction, there needs to be chemistry, there needs to be all of those feelings and emotions and the joy of being in love. Again, the Song of Songs, I think, is the most beautiful description of human love. And again, this is the woman singing, strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, I am faint with love. And that's a good thing, you know? We meant to feel those feelings. But notice... Chemistry is number five on the list. Our difficulty is so often in infatuation, we're in love. We just know, even though he's a jerk. There should be chemistry and attraction, but it comes in last on the list. And that chemistry and attraction has to be based on more than simply the physical appearance. We live in a world where we evaluate people on how they look. In fact, Tim Keller says in his book on marriage, he says, sadly, what he finds with young adults is they'll walk into a room or go to a party, and on the basis of looks, they will immediately eliminate 70% of the room 
before they've even talked to the person. That is a dumb way to cut down your options. You're actually much better to talk to everyone in the room because what you may find as you get to know someone, they may not look someone that immediately grabbed your attention, but they may well be someone that you grow to love and think is incredibly attractive. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, says Proverbs 31, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. So what do you look for? Singles, convictions, character, companionship, community, and only then chemistry. So date with purpose. Know what it is you're looking for and look for the right things. Finally, one more for you guys. Date with purity. Date with purity. Keep a clear head. We're going to talk about sex later on in this series. I want to devote a whole message to that. But I just want to say for now that it's incredibly important in a dating relationship that you have physical and emotional boundaries on how far you go. And we're in a world where, you know, it's friends with benefits and you just sleep with people and some huge percentage now of young couples move in together before marriage. We're going to go after all of that later in this series. But that is not the way God intended it. God gave his wonderful gift of sex for the marriage commitment of husband and wife. And when we get that wrong, we do ourselves and we do our partners a tremendous disservice. And we do this process a disservice too. Because when we end up sleeping with someone that we have not made a commitment to, it mucks up the whole process. 1 Corinthians 6, which is the passage we'll look at later on in this series, says, flee from sexual immorality, which is the word that's used for the broadest possible, every kind of sexual sin. Flee from all sexual sin. Hebrews 13 puts it positively. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. If you are single, that applies to you. Your marriage should be honoured by you now. And that means staying right away from sexual intimacy until you have vowed your life to that other person. Why? Andy Stanley says, nothing masks relational dysfunction like sexual involvement. Once a relationship gets physical, you lose objectivity. And that's because God designed sex to be like a glue in the marriage relationship. Enjoying that gift of intimacy that God has given helps to continually bind a husband's and wife's hearts and souls as well as bodies together. But you engage in that outside of the marriage relationship and you start gluing your hearts and souls together prematurely. That glue prevents you from properly evaluating it because you've gone far too far. That's why the Song of Songs repeatedly, the woman will sing to the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, until it's ready. All right, singles, so there you go. Date with freedom, date with realism, but date with purpose and with purity. Because what you're doing is you are wisely choosing a soulmate that you will then commit to. Right, really fast. All of you married are like, what about us? So let me say three things to you very quickly as we finish up. Number one, if you are married, stay committed no matter what. Because there was no 
the one out there for you. But when you stood before someone like me and said, I do, that person became the one. They are the one. And you vowed your life to that person for the rest of your life. There is not the one out there, but if you're married, there is the one right next to you. Well, unless they're not here, but you get the point. (laughs) All right? When we said, I do, that's the time that person became the one in your life. That's why when Jesus was asked about divorce, he would quote from Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. And then Jesus says, and so they are no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. The day you made your vows to each other and became husband and wife, God joined you and said, you're now the one for each other. So say committed. That means... Number two, stay focused. No matter, listen, no matter how hard it might be in marriage, there is not the one out there. This is the downside of the romantic narrative we have chosen to believe. That when marriage gets difficult, what people then do is this can't be right. This person doesn't complete me. Therefore, they're not the one. So my soulmate is still out there somewhere. And I'm tired of seeing spouses walk out on the one they vowed their lives to. Because they think the one is still out there. Be focused on the one you committed your life to. There is not a soulmate out there. Your soulmate is the one you committed your life to. So stay committed and stay focused and don't buy the romantic narrative that there might be someone else there's not. So no matter how hard it might be, love each other and stay committed to each other, and get help to make it work. Third comment to marrieds is to stay realistic. Just like the singles need to realise, we need to realise too, that while we love each other and we may have a great marriage, we can't meet each other's, all of each other's needs. For me to place on Rochelle, and I think I was guilty of this in the early years of our marriage, for me to place on Rochelle an expectation that she will complete me, that she will meet all of my needs, is utterly unfair. No human being has that capability. Enjoy marriage. Love each other deeply. Lay your lives down for each other, but don't go that extra piece in thinking that your spouse is going to meet every single need you have because that's the role of God in our lives and that's where we're going to go next week so don't mystically buy into this romantic narrative that there's a soulmate that there's the one and and your heart matches their heart and regardless of what Zeus may do to you you will find each other and complete each other that isn't true 
Scripture says we're free to marry whomever we choose in the Lord. So don't mystically find your soulmate. Choose wisely. And commit. And once you've committed, be all in, no matter what. Cool? I'm excited about the rest of this series. Make sure you are here next week. Let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, for your word and what it teaches to us, the tremendous wisdom that we've seen from different parts of Scripture today. God, I want to pray uh, for every single in our church, whether they're wanting to be married at this point or whether they're actually just content in their singleness because both of those are tremendous options for them. I just pray, though, that they would not buy the romantic myth that they are somehow incomplete without a spouse, without someone, other human being in their lives. Thank you that we find our completeness not in someone else but in you. I pray you'd give tremendous wisdom to each single person who would love to be married, who is looking. Help them to think well and choose wisely, I pray. God, for those of us who are married, help us to understand that this myth of the one isn't real. What is real is that we vowed our lives to one another, to our spouse, and that means they are now the one. I pray you would help those of us who are married to live out the vows that we made and love our husbands and love our wives with sacrificial Christ-like love. God, we commit ourselves to you for the rest of this series. We look forward excitedly to what we can learn together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, that's our service for today. Thank you for being with us. Hope to see you next week. Hope I haven't scared you off yet. <laughs>